Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas About the Search for Alternatives to Imprisonment Among Native People. We need something different. 80% Native people in the jail at times. You know, 70, 80% Young Offenders Facility Native people. <laughs> I mean, sometimes people got to have a look, a serious look, and say, there must be something we're not doing right. There must be some kind of a something we could be doing better. In February of 1996, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples released an interim report on justice issues. It argued that Aboriginal nations have a right, and I'm quoting directly, to establish and administer their own systems of justice, including the power to make laws within the Aboriginal nation's territory. The initial response from the Minister for Indian Affairs was sceptical, but the Cabinet is reportedly willing to give Aboriginal communities much greater power in the sentencing of their own offenders and in finding alternatives to imprisonment. Tonight's Ideas reports on some of the justice initiatives that are already underway in Aboriginal communities. It will also examine some of the objections to these initiatives that have been put forward by Native women's groups. The programme is Episode 9 of Prison and Its Alternatives by David Cayley. Native Canadians are overrepresented in Canada's prisons. In Ontario, Natives are 2% of the general population and 7% of the prisoners in provincial jails. In Manitoba, they make up 12% of the population and 47% of the prisoners. And in Saskatchewan, where 11% of the citizens are Native, they're 72% of the prisoners. The story is the same in federal prisons. Natives are 3.5% of the Canadian population, but they account for 12% of male federal prisoners and 17% of females. The story that these numbers tell is an old one. Cunliffe Barnett is a judge of the BC Provincial Court, and he remembers how things were when he first practiced as a lawyer in northern BC 25 years ago. When I was in Prince Rupert, there were still, in communities around there, and in all the smaller communities in British Columbia, in fact, uh, there were lay judges men, and I say that deliberately because they were men, who had no training as lawyers of any description, uh, but were considered local good citizens, and uh, they would get a call from the attorney general or would be asked by the man in charge of the local RCMP detachment if they'd like the job of judge, and somebody would send them a criminal code and swear them in, and they would go to work. And there was a common belief that these lay judges only heard minor cases, but that wasn't true. They were doing, I believed, uh, much more than anybody wanted to know. And some of the things that I saw while I was in Prince Rupert truly horrified me. I would be sent over sometimes by the Attorney General to the Queen Charlotte Islands as Crown Counsel to appear in court and to tell the local lay judge that the Attorney General did not want 
young native boys raised into adult court to be sentenced as criminals for very minor offenses. And uh, I would hear the judge say, well, he could care less what the attorney general wanted. Uh, he was going to send this boy to prison so that he would learn a trade and become a good citizen. And uh, some of those court cases were held in the RCMP corporal's office. And boys would be sent off to jail for long periods of time for truly minor offenses. That happened not just in the Queen Charlotte Islands, which I saw, but in many, many other communities around the province. That was one of the things that I suppose impelled me towards becoming a judge. As a judge, Cunliffe Barnett became a leader in the search for alternatives to imprisonment. He was appointed to the bench in 1973 and worked out of Williams Lake, often holding court in remote communities that other judges were reluctant to visit regularly. One of them was the island of Bella Bella on the B.C. coast about 500 kilometers north of Vancouver. There, in 1978, in the case of a young boy called Frank Brown, he imposed a sentence that became a landmark. Frank Brown was only 14, but he came from a troubled background, and he'd had some troubles with the police before, and then he got charged with what was really a very serious armed robbery. Uh, there'd been a gun involved, and Frank, at age 14, had been the leader. And uh, it was very clear that unless something stopped what seemed to be an inevitable headlong rush to a jail cell that Frank was going to wind up as a career criminal. And uh, he had the potential to be a very threatening and dangerous person as a criminal. People in the community at Bella Bella, however, could see better than those of us in the legal system, I'm sure, that Frank had a lot of potential which they were hoping could be channeled in a different direction. And uh, when it became very obvious after that armed robbery that Frank was going to go to jail, uh, people from the community met outside the courtroom and they talked about things that could be done to keep Frank away from jail. And the result was that Frank's uncle and some other community leaders came into the courtroom and asked if I would consider making an order sending Frank to a remote island, which was actually one of the band's reserves. And Frank would spend a period of time there by himself. His uncle was working on a salmon enhancement project at the time, and that work took him to the island pretty well every day, I believe. So Frank was isolated, but not totally abandoned. And Frank went there, and he spent a, a good period of time there, and it transformed his life. He came back, changed, and he's never been in trouble with the law since. And in fact, he's somebody who has become, he's not so young a leader anymore, but he has become a leader in the Aboriginal communities in British Columbia. And I think Frank has undoubtedly contributed to keeping a lot of other young persons out of trouble with the law. He's a real community leader. 
In the years since Frank Brown was sentenced, Judge Barnett has continued to be guided by the communities in which he holds court, and he's continued to take risks in his decisions. A case which he tried in the winter of 1994 concerned a man in his 30s called David, who was accused of sexually molesting a young girl. He held court in the small community of Nazgo, where the offense had occurred. And I remember the day pretty well because it took hours for the community hall to get heated up with a little wood stove, and I was kind of suffering with a bad cold. But we stayed there a good part of the day and held court in the community hall, seated in a circle. Most of the people who came to court in the community hall that day were themselves mothers, and there were some teenagers there, and there were some men. Quite a number of people, considering that we were there during the day, and it is a small community. And I learned that while it was true that David had gone into this little girl's home while she was there alone with her blind grandmother, and that David had sexually assaulted this little girl who, whose cries were heard by a neighbor... I learned all that, but I also learned that David had the mind of a boy, perhaps six years old. David is a man afflicted with fetal alcohol syndrome. When his mother was carrying him, uh, she was drinking very heavily. David is mentally retarded, but he was not regarded in the Nazco community as a frightening bad man. He was regarded as a very simple man, a gentle man. He used to babysit for a number of families. He used to watch over children on the playground. Uh, he used to do chores for elders. And the people of Nazco wanted me to know that they were very afraid that if a judge sent David to jail for what he had done, because that would be the normal response of any judge. Uh, the people of Nazco felt that his life would be destroyed and that he would come back to the community, which was the only home he had ever known, in all likelihood having been victimized and, and probably having learned things in prison that would make him dangerous in the community. They did not want David to go to jail. What they wanted was for the community to know of David's situation. And by holding court in Nazco, everybody in the community came to understand just what David had done. They wanted David not to continue to have access alone to little children, because clearly uh, there's a danger there. And they wanted me to order that arrangements be made for David to get some very basic education about sexual issues because here was a man over 30 with the sexual drives of an adult but the mind of a child and uh, in the end David did not go to jail a probation order was made that had the conditions in it that the community wanted and I've kept track of David's situation at least a little since then and I continue to be told that it was the right thing. There haven't been any further 
incidents. The community-based sentencing that Cunliffe Barnett introduced in BC has also been widely used in the Yukon. One of the judicial pioneers there has been Territorial Court Judge Barry Stewart. Barry Stewart was made a judge in 1978. He came to feel that the criminal justice system was crippling the capacity of local communities to deal with their problems. So he began to conduct sentencing hearings seated in a circle with the concerned community and to encourage dispositions that involved rehabilitation in the community rather than jail. The circle form was adapted from native custom, and circle sentencing stuck as a name. Judge Stewart describes the impact of the circle on one habitual offender. Somebody who had been in and out of the criminal justice system for 20 years and had probably been sentenced to jail a dozen or more times and expected to go to jail again. The community dealt with this person, offered them the opportunity to go into the circle, set out the conditions that this person had to do, which would be the first time for that person to take some responsibility over his own fate, uh, challenged him to do so and said that if he was capable of doing some conditions that they set out for him, they would provide support. He did that, came to the uh, circle, and, and in the circle heard some pretty harsh things about his conduct. But unlike the court, uh, where we say you did a bad thing and then say you're a bad person, in the circle they say you did a bad thing, uh, but you're not necessarily a bad person. And how can we help you take the energy that you're putting in uh, to do bad things to essentially uh, convert that energy into doing something constructive? And they went on to say, express love for him, support for him, um, expressed real hope for him, that he could make some significant contributions, recognized that the positive things he had done in his life, it was the first time that that person had, first of all, ever spoken um, and participated in decisions that affected him. And because he did speak out, which he'd never done in court, of course, before, he broke down and said nobody had ever talked to him like that before, and he didn't think that anybody had any respect for him. Anyway, he ultimately lived up to the commitments that uh, the circle had imposed and um, went on to contribute significantly to his community um, and still is and feels a tremendous amount of, of support and respect. And in fact, he, like many others that have gone through the circle who have made it, and I have to say that circles aren't a panacea. I mean, we're dealing with people uh, you know, whose life is in extremis circumstances and therefore um, have a long, long way to go. But what he's been able to do is carve out a healing trail for others to follow and has gone and talked to others and worked with them to uh, move them from a life of uh, substance abuse and crime and back to substance abuse um, into being a part of, of uh, the healing journey. Circle sentencing has now been taken up in communities throughout the Yukon. In Carcross, one of the keepers of the circle is Harold Gattensby, a man with some experience of the criminal justice system. At 15, he was raised into adult court and sent south for a year to the federal penitentiary at Fort Saskatchewan. He was subsequently in and out of jail a number of times before his life turned around. He says that he immediately embraced the idea of circle sentencing when Barry Stewart introduced him to it. 
He asked for a meeting with the people in our community about justice. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'm going to be involved in that. I want to go. And he said, we want to try this new process, circle. And the one thing that I realized sort of in my recovery, I, I guess you could call it, is that this circle is so powerful. I had been cornered in my life. Perhaps I did it myself. A lot of help from the institutions, the what I call heartless institutions. But I'd been cornered. And when I started to learn about a circle, I realized that you cannot corner the human being in a circle. That there is an equality about a circle. That life, all of life around us, the earth is round, the trees are round. You burn a fire in the middle of winter, I mean, uh, it doesn't matter if you stack it up square or what, it's going to burn and melt the snow in a circle. I started to see something very powerful in this circle. And so when the judge, Barry Stewart, came to the community, had a meeting on justice and said, uh, we've been doing this circle, or we want to try out this circle. I think they had done it in one other place in Mayo. He said, would you guys like to do that here? And right away I said, without hesitation, yes. Yes, we want to do it in Carcross because I knew the power of it. Harold Gattensby's enthusiasm grew out of his own experience. He had been in court many times, as a boy and as a young man, and he could recall the alienation he had felt. I just remembered that feeling well, how they come to our community, how I felt when I was in court, how I felt my heart would start beating, just about leap out of my throat, my hands would start sweating, I felt like I was in a foreign land. I didn't understand half the things that they were saying. Everybody there was an expert except me. And the more I thought about it, the, the more I realized that, you know, to me it's not right. It's not right that uh, strangers from a different world can come and not only influence the lives of those people that stand before them, but their families, and our whole community. Circle sentencing has allowed those affected to participate in deciding the case. The judge remains ultimately responsible, but he sits in the circle along with the Crown, the defense, and other officials of the court. The gathering is still officially a session of the court, but its procedures and ceremonies are drastically altered. When we go through a court circle sentence, we gather everybody together in a circle. We start off with a prayer. We may join hands. We may use a, a smudge to clean the air, clean the environment. But we start off with a prayer and we invite the Creator. We invite the ancestors. We invite help. We, we humble ourselves to them, say, we can't do this alone. Please be with us. Then we explain to people that this is a process that's everyone is equal here, everyone will have an opportunity to talk, that one person speak at a time, everybody else listen. This is a way of showing respect to each other. Then we'll pass a feather around, perhaps a talking stick, maybe a rock, but something to, I suppose, hold a direction, 
each person will introduce themselves, what's their purpose for being there, and it goes right around in a circle, and then we proceed with the case. And then what happens after the person comes out, the offender is like somehow, in a way that everybody was there, all of a sudden becomes a, you know, they're watching them, eh? You know, if a person says, I'm never going to drink again, and they start a drink, well, then they got, you know, 30 people in the community, they're saying, don't you remember what you said in the circle sentence? Uh, you, you told us you weren't going to do this, eh? And like this, it's a, a healing process. Uh, it's a process to get the community involved, and it gives people a chance. And I think that's the biggest uh, thing about the circle is that it gives people a chance, which they may never have had before, but a chance for uh, for recovery and a different uh, change in their life. A number of cases have now been sentenced in this way in Carcross. The most important effect, Harold Gattensby says, has been the way that it has brought the community together. What it did was it got people from our community involved that usually just sat back that were never there. You know, when court came to town, it was like, well, who's going to court today, you know, and if it was some kind of an offense that people were interested, perhaps they would go and sit in the audience and see what's going to happen. Otherwise, you know, they just, uh, you drive by the community hall, you'd see a bunch of vehicles there and say, oh, it's court day today, and be thankful that you're not on the docket yourself. But what this circle did was it got people involved, even if they didn't agree with it. I mean, at our first circle, there was, there was a few people there that uh, didn't agree with what we were doing, but... They had an opportunity to speak their mind, and, and we listened. And so it worked out quite well. It started getting more people from our community involved, which, you know, is a wonderful thing because, I mean, when somebody goes to court, it's not only that offender or the victim that hurts. Our whole community hurts. The family hurts. And, and one of the things that we think about is is that person's going to come back, going to come back to the community. And I know what jail does. Makes you mean, makes you bitter, teaches you to be dishonest. When I went there, I learned how to open a safe. I learned how to paper hang, which I thought was, when someone first mentioned it, he's a paper hanger. I thought he was the guy that put wallpaper on the walls. But I learned that first time when I was 15 years old, paper hanger, forged checks, how to open this kind of safe, spring this kind of lock, that kind of lock, how not to get caught. And I know this, uh, this still goes on in jail. And so when someone does get sentenced to jail, um, certainly in some cases, you know, it's uh, appropriate, but I think people have to consider what happens in that process to those people and also that those people are going to come back to the community. They're going to come back to their family and they're going to feel isolated. They're going to feel rejected. They're going to feel like they don't belong there. And we all have to deal with that. We may be scared of them because sometimes they're bitter. You can see it in their eyes. Boy, they're like a... They're so volatile, don't come near me, boy, or you're going to get it. And because that's what you learn in jail. 
and uh, they don't know how to put that aside when they come back home. So we thought that perhaps by the community sitting down and saying, look at what you did. You've hurt people. This is not the way our people are. This is not the way we're meant to be. This is not the way we want to live. But we need more opportunity to teach, to share, to show the goodness of our own people's way. Circle sentencing has now been in use in the Yukon for a number of years. The term was put into official circulation in a decision filed by Judge Barry Stewart in 1991. In Whitehorse, where the Quanlin Dunn Circle Court has now heard some 200 cases, the federal and territorial governments have funded a pilot community justice program to work with offenders and victims going through circle sentencing. In other communities, preparing for the circle and following through on its decisions still depend on volunteers. Barry Stewart evaluates the results so far as extremely promising for both communities and offenders. The majority of people who have gone through the circle sentencing process have either stopped committing crimes completely or have reduced both the frequency and the seriousness of their criminal conduct. In the communities, what I've seen is the beginning of a much better understanding uh, among them of their different opinions. I've seen people who have not participated in the community at all beginning to be very active and involved in the community. I mean, I think the most important thing to developing any community is resolving conflict, whatever the nature of the conflict is. If a community goes through a process in which they can be empowered to resolve the conflict, they're going to get a greater sense of being able to trust each other, to move with each other, and getting an understanding that they can make a difference. And whether it's municipal problems or health problems or criminal problems, I think that's the case. And I think I'm seeing many people who are coming out of the circle sentencing process with a better understanding of how to use the consensus-based skills in, uh, in, their, in their home situation, in the workplace, and in the community generally. Circle sentencing in the Yukon grew out of the recognition that the criminal justice system was powerless to address the underlying causes of the problems that were ending up in court. It could only punish the symptoms. Rupert Ross has come to the same understanding of the difficulty facing the justice system in the Cree and Ojibwe communities where he works. He's an assistant crown attorney from Kenora who flies into small settlements across northwestern Ontario for court hearings. In 1992, he published Dancing with a Ghost, a book that explores the clash of Native and Western understandings of justice and recounts his own progress in understanding Native worldviews. He says that he still remembers the court session that made him aware of the drastic limitations of the system he represented. On the court list that day were probably 20-some youngsters, all under the Young Offender Act, and they had all been charged with breaking the ban bylaw against using intoxicants. But underneath that dry language, the reality was that they had all been found about 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, standing on a sandbar out in front of the community, sniffing gas out of bags and wailing like banshees. And 
as I came into the room where we were going to deal with these 20 children in this community, that really is the future of that community, I had to ask myself what I was possibly going to contribute to getting at the difficulty that uh, kind of behavior illustrated. Uh, was I going to put people in jail? Was I going to give them fines? If I was going to put them on probation, what kinds of terms uh, were we going to do? What occurred to me then was that my processes did not permit me to ask the central question, and that is why. Why are 20 children all out there at that hour in that state? Uh, what is going on here? And that the failure of our system to ask the why question is something that's been haunting me ever since. This failure, in Rupert Ross's view, arises from a narrow concept of individual responsibility. Aboriginal cultures, he says, take a broader view of the forces that put those children on that sandbar. It seems fair to say that our Western uh, justice system, if not the larger society, sees individuals as individuals where within another understanding, individuals are seen as the sum of their relationships. We are really uh, the end result of all of the various forces and peoples that are uh, a part of our lives. So the notion of either helping uh, somebody or changing somebody by dealing with them strictly as an individual, uh, I gather, is seen as perplexing. That uh, the understanding seems to be that unless you deal with all of the people who are intimately involved in the life of that offender, uh, that ultimately, because you don't change the patterns, uh, the dynamics, the forces, the context, there's very little hope of changing the person in the middle of it. The Western criminal justice system is primarily driven by an act, which we call a crime. That's what we investigate, that's what we charge, that's what we have to prove. My growing understanding of, of Aboriginal approaches says the act is nothing more than a symptom of underlying dysfunctions. And all of our fascination with the act and attention to the act is almost beside the point. Uh, the issue is all of the dysfunctions within relationships out of which that act erupts. And unless you, as a justice system, address your attentions and your skills and your questions to the relationships out of which uh, those crimes erupt, you will, there will be more crimes erupting out of them tomorrow and the next day. The problem, as Rupert Ross sees it, is not the criminal justice system as such. It has its place, he thinks. The problem is our excessive reliance on it. Everything that we uh, don't like in society gets funneled into the process that ultimately is set to handle Paul Bernardo. We put moose hunters into that process uh, who shoot out a season, drunk drivers, uh, schoolyard fights, all into a process which is ultimately geared to deal with the most dangerous offenders. Uh, and when you're dealing with those offenders, people who, for whatever reason, are unable or unwilling to live within society's norms, who are just too dangerous to have on the streets, then we need a process with all of the protections that we presently have in it uh, because we're saying that the state wants to take away your liberty uh, and for a very long time. And then we need all those processes, those rights, all those protections. And we need the adversariality of it because it is adversarial. 
my worry is that by funneling absolutely everything into it, we are creating adversarial uh, approaches and antagonisms and angers and alienations in situations where they may be the problem and we may be adding to the very thing that we're trying to cure. By putting people into an adversary process, you're only adding to the antagonisms between them. Uh, by putting them through a process based on power, you are only adding to the definition of what life is to offenders, and that is life is a power struggle. You're adding to their notions of defiance, of the imposition of their own will, uh, of rugged individualism. You're only making him more into the kind of person who is uh, living that way and taking uh, his power out on other people. A better alternative to Rupert Ross's mind would be a style of justice that heals rather than reinforcing existing hostilities. Recently, he undertook a study of Native justice initiatives for the federal government's Aboriginal Justice Directorate, and he says that he found an outstanding example of this healing justice at work in the Hollowwater First Nation and its three adjacent communities at the southeast tip of Lake Winnipeg. In the mid-80s, these communities began to face up to epidemic levels of alcoholism and of incest. In a survey of 60 community members, two-thirds said that they had been sexually abused as children, and one-third admitted to victimizing others in turn. The figure is astonishing, but does square with the result of a survey taken by the Canham Lake Band in British Columbia, in which more than half of band members said that they had been sexually exploited as children. In Hollowwater, a group of social workers, who called themselves the Community Resource Group, mobilized the community to deal with this buried history. Burma Bushy, who works for the Manitoba Department of Child and Family Services, was one of the leaders. She says that they soon recognized that the criminal justice system held no answers. Its only resource was prison, and prison could only interrupt and perhaps ultimately intensify the problem. They can uh, incarcerate a person for two years. That's time out from my community. But that person is coming back, and coming back a changed person and in a lot of situations maybe uh, for the worse because I've been to those uh, jail institutions and they're not healthy places. They're not conducive to people healing and the inmates in those institutions are not very open to uh, offenders, uh, victimizers talking about their uh, sexual offenses. Their own lives are at stake if they do that. It's terrible. I don't know how our society continues to believe that those institutions are serving uh, what they're supposed to do. It's just not doing it. And the people that come out of those places is, um, I don't know, I think worse off than uh, before they went in. I really do. Based on this understanding of the counterproductivity of imprisonment, the Hollow Water Community Resource Group came to an agreement with the Manitoba Department of Justice and the RCMP that allowed them, where the offender admitted guilt, to deal with disclosures of sexual abuse within the community. We know our families. We know our history. We, we, uh, we can quickly validate uh, disclosures. And uh, we insist that we 
we be the ones to do confrontations. Uh, police don't have the uh, relationships and the history to be able to tell if a person is uh, in denial or is actually not guilty. So uh, we insist that we do the uh, confrontations. We call them confrontations, for lack of a better word. But basically, we take the uh, disclosure and we go and ask the offender, did you do this? We explain that they have the option to go with the regular court system, which is uh, go to court, deny, and take your chances. Or you can take responsibility. We'll support you through the system. We'll, we'll be there all the way through. Offenders who choose this route are diverted from court while they participate in what is called community holistic circle healing. This involves both traditional practices and contemporary therapeutic techniques. Sentencing is delayed while this goes on. Once a guilty plea has been entered, uh, we ask the courts for four months to uh, do our own assessment in terms of uh, the victimizer's commitment. We know that uh, he's uh, initially, when he says, uh, yes, I did this, he's under pressure, he's afraid, he's all kinds of things are, are in play. So we ask for four months because we want to know, is this person serious about his healing? And he, we're talking healing uh, initially the first five years. That's just the beginning. So we ask, of course, for four months. And in that four months, we prepare the, uh, the victimizers and, and the victims for the, what we call the special gathering. The special gathering is uh, the uh, sensing circle. And that's uh, one sentence is passed and the whole, the whole thing is open to the community. So in the four months, we sit with the offender and he tells us in as much detail as possible what he's done. It's important that he start to uh, take responsibility for what he's done and that he start telling uh, community members about what he's done. The next circle is uh, with his family. In lots of cases, when a family member is uh, charged with sexual assault, if that person is in denial, then the whole family goes into denial. And so it's important that uh, the offender begin to tell his family what he's done so that there's no group denial as possible once he starts to take responsibility. Uh, the the uh, other circle is with his victim. It's time for the victim to, to tell the offender what they've gone through, the impacts on his or her life. And then the fourth circle is, of course, uh, the sensing circle where the court party comes in and the whole case is open to the community. The community has opportunity to come and respond to the victim directly, to the offender directly, and they have opportunity to make recommendations to the judge for sentencing. Sentencing will not normally involve jail, according to a protocol negotiated between the healing team and the Manitoba Department of Justice, but will keep the offender in the community. The results, Rupert Ross says, have been outstanding. They have dealt with a total of 48 sexual offenders, and five of those people ultimately went to jail. Uh, they wouldn't participate in the healing program, uh, and they went to jail. 
43 of them uh, worked with the team, and only two of them ever went into uh, a repeat of their behavior. The other 41 remained in the community, remained in the healing program, remained in their jobs, remained a part of the outside life with no recidivism. This is over a 10-year period, uh, and that's a record which uh, I suspect uh, cannot be matched anywhere in the other system. What has happened is that when the team ultimately comes before the Western Court for sentencing at the end of their process, they are presenting the court with an alternative to jail, which Crown attorneys and judges have, uh, and the police have uniformly found far more promising, far more attractive than simply sending somebody off to jail because it, it promises a process where there can be a full understanding of the harm of the behavior that was done, uh, a process where all of the parties uh, involved in these webs of relationships, again, are brought back into notions of respect with each other, uh, and it promises a return to, to peace and order in the community for the, for the benefit of everybody. It is a community healing program. It's not just focused on offenders or, uh, or victims. Aboriginal sentencing alternatives have been controversial. Decisions of sentencing circles have been overturned on appeal, and critics have taken issue with the idea of racially segregated justice. Some of the loudest criticism has come from Native women. The Inuit Women's Association, Paktutit, for example, has complained for some time about what its members see as a pattern of very lenient sentences imposed by Northern judges in sexual assault cases. They fear that alternatives like sentencing circles, in the absence of other changes, will only make the situation of Inuit women worse. Mary Kronkovich is an Ottawa lawyer and a consultant to Paktudit's Justice Project, which has looked at the likely effects of alternatives on Inuit women. She was present at the first sentencing circle ever held in Nunavik, the northern Quebec region, in 1993. It involved a man charged with assaulting his wife. He had already been convicted on this charge three times before and had been to prison. The judge, Jean-Luc Dutille, decided to try a sentencing circle. Neither he nor the community had any prior experience with this format. The organization of the circle was carried out by the community's mayor and appeared to be left to the day of the event, Mary Kronkovich says. She was interested in what happened to the victim. She clearly was uneasy about this whole process, she indicated that she was told by her husband that she was to participate. When I asked her where she wanted to sit, she said that he had asked her to sit beside her. In the time that I spoke with her, he was always very close by. So if at any point she wanted to indicate any kind of concern or fear or doubts about what was going on, it was very difficult, I think, for her to do that. And the and then the end result of that circle, it, deliberated for a period, I think, of about three to four hours. What was considered initially his problem became their problem. That was the terminology that was used by the participants in the circle. And they ultimately decided that what would be best is that the couple came on a weekly basis and talked to three individuals that the group had identified to act as counselors. These individuals that were identified were not identified because of any expertise they had with dealing with abuse, but 
just because they were individuals that they thought these individuals could best talk with. And, and that, was the, that was the determination of the circle. And the judge, again, suspended sentence and said he would go with that. And this was in May. Of, uh, and then the following October, he would return and meet with the couple and discuss how things were working out. Things didn't work out well. The counseling group fell apart. The man resumed drinking and beating his wife. Later, he was found guilty of a sexual assault on his wife's sister and sent back to jail. The case was reported in detail by Mary O'Connell on CBC Radio's Sunday Morning and appears to present a textbook case on how not to organize a sentencing circle. There was no preparation, no effective follow-up, and no consideration for the victim's position. Mary Kronkovich thinks that it illustrates how alternatives can be abused. I got a call from an Inuk in prison down in, in the south. He was saying, I hear you can get me a sentencing circle. I want out. And we, you know, I, I then explained, no, I think you've got the wrong person. Um, and we talked a little bit, but he clearly saw sentencing circles as a way of getting himself out of jail. He wasn't looking for sentencing circles as a means to kind of make a connection back to the community to try to sh- change his way of life. Rather, he saw this as a quick way out of jail. You know, if that's... If sentencing circles in Inuit communities become alternatives to incarceration, my concern is, for many of the women, they will look at sentencing circles as sending a message that in some instances violence is okay, because depending on who the individuals are in the circle, if they look at at this and and have some, some say on it, they won't want to put people down south. Who wants to bear the responsibility of sending a relative or a close friend to a federal institution way away from the community and live with that responsibility. I don't think many people will. We just have to look at the number of convictions that result when when sexual offenders are before jury trials. In two particular Inuit communities, the sexual assault uh, convictions by jury are very, very, very low. And a lot of people just don't want to take on that responsibility. Obviously, it's a small community and they don't want to live with that. It's Paktudit's view that violence against women is not yet taken seriously as a problem in their communities. One Paktudit member, Patricia Kamukzigak, states in a report for the Inuit Health Commission that in some communities, wife assault is so common that people see it as normal. Without a change in this attitude, and without institutional support for such a change, Mary Kronkovich fears that transferring some of the authority of courts to local justice committees will only strengthen the existing centers of power in the community. The problem in the communities that I've been um, informed about by women in these communities is that, for example, justice committees are struck. People really don't know the purpose of the committee. And often individuals who are the least likely you would expect to be participating in a justice committee, for example, they're individuals who have abusive behavior, or other types of, of, of conduct that would be unacceptable, if not illegal, are participating as committee members. So the credibility of these committees gets called into question. But also their credibility gets called into question by individuals who are confronted with the family dynamics in a community. If there's a power imbalance and the community is representative of a strong family and, and is ruling that community and using these mechanisms in, in, an, in a way that is not fair, 
then you start to hear complaints, and that's clearly what we have. We've we've heard many complaints. Uh, in one particular case, a woman came forward around a child sexual abuse. She's an adult survivor of uh, child sexual abuse, and finally came forward and wanted the individual charged. He was, and the committee basically came forward to the judge and and said that she should just forgive. That was their view. Now, this individual has very, he's a very important member in the community. He has strong family ties, and the individuals on the committee are all connected in some way, if not by blood through marriage or respectful of, of his authority in that community. And therefore, in my view, have used that to silence her from coming forward. Away from the courthouse, they have pressured her into not reporting and have made her life and her family's life quite miserable. Uh, to me, that's an abuse of, of authority. So it seems like these community justice committees and other wellness initiatives are initiated, but there are no guidelines, there are no standards. Youth justice committees don't seem to be so bad. But when committees, justice committees are dealing with adult offenders and primarily around issues of domestic assault, spousal assault, we have some real concerns. The government isn't providing any kind of training any kind of screening me- mechanisms to find out who it is that's participating on the community. And it's this assumption that it's the community's business, it's this move for self-government, therefore these individuals have the right to define their own terms and we don't have a right to tell them how to do it. But in doing that, they're abdicating, I think, their responsibility to those people who don't have a voice and don't have any kind of power within the community to ensure that they're not abused further by this. Mary Kronkovich's criticisms of sentencing alternatives specifically address the situation of Inuit women. They don't necessarily apply in communities where alternatives are better organized and better supported. But Rupert Ross, who has studied Native justice initiatives across the country, says that he certainly sees some of the same problems that she does. I have uh, seen communities which put forward uh, what were described as healing programs for violence in the home and for sexual abuse. And it's my own view that some of them amounted to little more than abuser protection plans where nothing really was going to be done to change the dynamics of, of what led up to the original offense. I, I don't have answers on this either, but I can only mention some of the things that I would look for when I was try- if I'm trying to evaluate whether something is uh, uh, sincerely and fully within uh, the healing paradigm. I would look, for instance, at any program that only dealt with the offender as one that was not responding to this other way of looking at things that requires looking at all of the people in a relationship with the offender and spending at least the same amount of time on victims, if not a great deal more uh, than on the offenders, but at the same time extending that to all of the other people who are involved. If I didn't see that breadth of analysis, I would be suspicious that this was something put in place just to make it easier for the offender. I would uh, also look at uh, whether or not the program was going to be one where a group of people were essentially going to be telling the parties what was going to happen in their lives as opposed to putting themselves together as facilitators of uh, the parties creating their own solutions. If I saw uh, systems being proposed where essentially people were going to be playing the Western role of judges, making all the decisions and telling people what to do, then I would wonder whether or not this was uh, within the healing paradigm. I'd also look for 
whether or not there was a, a strong representation of women on the group that was going to be doing the facilitating. In Aboriginal communities, I would also be looking uh, to see whether or not there was uh, good representation from all of the various families uh, within the community uh, to avoid the potentials for one family uh, maintaining a position of power or abuse over other families. Using these criteria, Rupert Ross believes that a clear distinction can be drawn between the healing justice that he sees at work in hollow water and initiatives that simply co-opt alternatives in support of an unjust status quo. But an element of risk is bound to remain, even with the clearest criteria. Judge Cunliffe Barnett thinks that this risk is worth taking, but without illusions. You're testing uncharted waters, and you're going to make mistakes. I've made mistakes, uh, or I have done things which in hindsight appear to be mistakes. But then I've sent people to jail and watched that person come out more angry, more violent, (laughs) a bigger threat to the safety of other persons, and go back to jail come out and go back again. I mean, jails are very much a revolving door syndrome for many persons who go there. And if there is a sensible way to avoid a jail sentence, uh, then I think that courts should take the time to explore that possibility. But nobody should think that alternative procedures are going to work in every case and rehabilitate every person who is sentenced in some alternative way. On Ideas Tonight, you listen to part nine of Prison and Its Alternatives by David Cayley. The series producer is Alison Moss. Technical operations, Lorne Tulk. Production assistant, Gail Brownell. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $7 plus GST, or you can buy the entire 10-part series for only $25 plus GST. Send us a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. We also have a free reading list for the series if you'd like one. It's available at the same address, or you can contact us on email. Our address is ideasattoronto.cbc.ca. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Mr. Sinclair. <laughs>